Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jordy and Josh show. We're back. It's been a few months since we were able to to do this, but uh, these are always the the best, most entertaining, fun shows. And uh, it's my pleasure to to be here with Jordy Armstrong, uh, Santa Barbara City College teacher, professor, extraordinaire, all around environmentalist and super smart, intelligent person. So how are you doing, Jordy? Oh, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah. Got my hair, got my hair going here and my background and my coffee, yeah. you know, so. Put your ready. hair on this morning. I'm ready to present. Well, what? You put your hair on this morning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually, I put some water in it and a little mousse and I'm in my, I think I look good enough for YouTube mode. So, <laughs> so here we are. Um, but yeah, we've taken a few months off just because we're both really busy and trying to find time to do things can sometimes be difficult. So so here we are. And uh, we got a lot to talk about. I wanted to dive right in and, and ask you about we're going to do kind of a pop culture current events news podcast uh, here today. I wanted to talk to you about Barbie and the yeah. phenomenon that is barbie all over the world it's like a billion dollar movie and i yeah, know first, i saw first female directed billion dollar movie wow that's amazing because i know when i was watching it i was thinking i can't believe a woman made this movie you know it's like <laughs> so you know no i want to talk about it that good it's it's a, and it was funny too right and women don't have a sense of humor so yeah exactly right you know they're such good multitaskers but you know to make this movie you know so no, but I wanted anyway. to talk about like the reaction to the movie and your reaction because I've seen it twice. Love the movie, plan to watch it again whenever it's streaming. And all these conservatives are all worked up about it. And it's like even the like progressives are all like, this is such an anthem for anti-patriarchy. And I'm just like, it's just a funny movie. Like, chill out. Like it's just a well-written, funny movie. Everybody needs to calm down, right? But what, let's talk. What, what do you think of Barbie? Well, so first of all, are there that many people who are putting down the movie? Because it is a billion-dollar grossing movie. And um, everybody I know who's seen it has enjoyed it. And maybe I live in a you know tiny progressive bubble. But it feels like we're giving a lot of attention to a vocal minority of people who either want attention or, I mean, talk about not having a sense of humor, like really don't have a sense of humor about themselves or about the world in general. Because every time I go on Instagram or, you know, some kind of social media like that, some kind of, I'm only on Instagram. Um, I see people posting like, oh, these uh, men are bothered by Barbie and uh, blah, blah, blah. And they can't take a joke and yada, yada, yada. And to me, it feels like we're giving a vocal minority a whole lot of attention, which is interesting and ironic because the film is about <laughs> the amount of attention that we give to a small number of people and the amount of power that we give to a small number of people or to a, a minority really of, of people when we should be paying attention to all the people who love the movie, who think it's funny, who think it's progressive, who think that it's finally saying what they've been thinking and maybe haven't had the words to say and put into put into words exactly the way, you know, you think like, oh yeah, that's it. That's exactly what I've been uh, trying to 
form into some kind of a cohesive sentence in the last whatever. So, so yeah, so I think that I wonder how many people actually have seen the movie and didn't like the movie. And I wonder how many of these people who are complaining about the movie have actually watched the movie. And if there's that many of them, really, and if we're just giving attention again to a tiny vocal minority, when we should like not feed them that energy, the more energy we feed people who are just out to be contrary and to, to hate on something, the more energy we feed them, the bigger they get. Right. So I think if we just kind of ignore that and focus on the positive, which there's a lot of positive about this film. So you saw it twice with your daughter, right? Yeah, we saw it twice and it was funny. I was not offended once. In fact, a lot of the the commentary was was true. Like it was like it's exactly what men think. It's exactly what men do. It's exactly um, how men move in the world. And I wasn't offended because it's funny. You know, it's true and it's funny. Just go with it. Um, and I wasn't oh. like, oh, I can't believe these people are trying to like take away male power. And you know, it's like it's not what it was. It was also male empowering. Too, it allows men to not feel as though they have to be these super masculine, aggressive people and dominate. That there's actually room for sharing roles and emotions and feelings, and that's okay. And of course, it's up to everybody to figure out with their partners how they're gonna how they're gonna be and you know associate with each other. But I just thought it the writing was really good, and I can I can appreciate really good writing no matter what it's about. That's just like normal stuff. But what'd you like about it? Well, and I don't think it's making fun of men. It's making fun of the patriarchy, which doesn't serve anybody. And that's the point of any kind of any kind of system of hegemony, no matter who is at top of that system of hegemony. So a system of power, um, it's never going to serve even the people that it pretends to serve. So we live in a patriarchy that pretends to serve men, but it doesn't. It limits them in the same way that it limits everybody else in the patriarchy. Um, It puts them into a box that says that they can't be emotional, that they can't uh, cry, that, you know, all the all the stereotypical stuff that we say men can't do. I mean, that doesn't serve them because they're human beings that have a whole range of emotions. It's one of the reasons that we have such toxic relationships with sex in general you know we have toxic relationships on both for you know and I'm talking in a strict binary with male and female right now but um because that's the way our culture and our patriarchy sets things up to be on a binary between male and female but we have this this you know old idea that women are supposed to not like sex very much protect their sex and sexuality and hold on to it. And it's only supposed to be for very, very special people and yada, yada, yada. So this idea that somehow it's something that women are supposed to, you know, to, to, um, to cling to and protect, whereas men are supposed to be virile and, and want to have sex with everything that walks by them. And so you have these very toxic relationships with sex to begin with, where we're both, we're both like on opposing sides of one is just constantly going for it. And the other is like, like in this, in this super protective mode. But if you think about how men relate to sex, it has to do with 
like it's their only outlet for intimacy. It's their only way that they can actually be intimate in this patriarchal system that says they can't cry, they can't show emotion. So the only time that they actually get to be close to somebody or feel any kind of emotion is when they're having sex. So like it's the only permissible outlet of emotion for men. And that, again, doesn't serve anybody. It creates a toxic relationship with sex and sexuality. It creates a, a very confining way of relating to the world for men. So I don't think the movie is making fun of men. I think it's making fun of a system that doesn't serve any of us. And if we had a matriarchy, if we had any kind of any kind of system of hegemony is going to hurt everybody because it's a system of power it's a specific system of power that puts people into boxes and doesn't recognize their individuality etc cetera, etc cetera. and in the long run it hurts us it hurts us emotionally it hurts us with intimacy and it hurts us with uh, meeting our ultimate our ultimate uh like what we're most capable of because it doesn't celebrate us as individuals. It celebrates, or it doesn't celebrate anything really. A system of hegemony doesn't celebrate anything that's not conforming to a very specific small box, which nobody fits into. So I don't think it's making fun of men. I think it's making fun of patriarchy. And the people who are upset by it either can't see that or they just, again, are so emotionally stunted that this is one of the only ways that they can have an emotional outlet, if that makes sense. That mm -hmm. even like the complaining about something is like one of the only ways that they feel okay having an emotional output, if that makes sense. So yeah, no, everything there makes sense. And it's really, really thoughtful. And this idea that there's two opposites, especially around the idea of sex is very per pervasive in, in our society, you know, and, and there are, you know, men have to live kind of in fear, good men all the time about how they're perceived. If they are, you know, too nice or, you know, if they're too sensitive, you know, like if you're sensitive with another dude, people are going to think something about you. If you're sensitive with a woman, they're going to think, Oh, you're trying to, you know, romance her or, you're trying to make her seem like you're one of those sensitive guys, you know, and it's always through the like lens of what are men's aspirations, you know? And then it's also, well, did you, were you able to convince her or break her down or was she able to finally, you know, let her guard down so that you could, you know, whatever partner. And so that's a, that's a thing you have to deal with all the time, especially like, you know, I know it's, Obviously, I would say 100% women have to deal with things much worse in society, but men also have to deal with this constant thing of, you are a predator. Like, you are out for one thing. And even if you're not, you're pretending like you're not, but you really are, you know? And that's just, like, wrong. That's a lot of pressure, too. And I'd be happy if I never had to kill another spider in my life, you know? Like... Why are you killing Everybody spiders? hates the patriarchy until there's the big spider. It's like Josh, Josh. Outside. What? I put spiders outside. When I find spiders. No, no, no. I, I, I do too. Okay, but sometimes they're in a spot and they're big and they're near places, and you know you just got to do what you have to do. You know, no, unless I'm not manly if I don't kill it, Jordy. Like, do you understand the pressure that I'm on? The spider's just trying to survive, like everybody. Oh my God, I just dropped this many levels with you. This is going to be our last podcast. 
<laughs> Return to sender emails after this. No, uh, have you never killed a spider, Jordy? Um, I mean, I'm sure I've killed a spider in my life, but I uh, I opt for the putting them outside. Even the black widows, which maybe I shouldn't say this out outside because people might get upset. But like, I found a couple of black widows in the last month or so front door and then in my daughter's shoe <laughs> it was in like in her Birkenstock hanging on to the underneath um underneath the strap mm-hmm. anyway both of them I like just walk way out and put out in a bush because why should they why should be, be... <laughs> We especially kill things that we think of as dangerous, like black widows or rattlesnakes or whatever, um, because they're dangerous to us. But we're everywhere. And these species are just trying to survive. And we're cutting down their numbers and targeting them simply because they appear more dangerous to us. It, it doesn't serve our our ecosystem in the way that in the long run. So anyway, no, I, I, I uh, avoid killing spiders. And I leave oh. spiders alone unless they're black widows and then i move them away for you know because what if somebody gets bit yeah and they die because of it (laughs) then then it's my fault i have a a, so like i'm with you but if there's a black widow it's over there's no there's no saving the black widow in my house um but let's talk let's talk about See that? See how bad I feel now? I shouldn't feel that bad, you know. I should be okay. No, about killing the spiders. Well, so before the spider tangent, um, I was going to say that uh, that we have this tendency to kind of compare oppressions whenever it comes, whenever we're talking about anything, whether it's like ethnicity or gender or whatever. We want to compare and be like, I know that it's much worse for or, but comparing oppressions doesn't really serve anybody either. You know the again, it pits us against each other instead of looking at the real issue, which is the structure of power that's putting us all in these confined boxes. So yes, like it's always going to be worse for somebody else. But the more we say, I know it's much worse for you, but for me, I feel we're not joining forces and looking at the real issue, which is the structure of power that's confining all of us. So it is bad for you to feel like the predator and in some ways you know women are framed as the predator if it's the predator who's looking to take your money or the predator who's looking to like catch you i mean catching that's that's like literally what they say in in uh, fiddler on the roof you know yenta is like you've got to catch a man a man is for catching so that's predatory as well it's this predatory uh we're looking you're constantly on the the offensive to figure out what do you want from me and is it really about me or are you just looking for some other form of protection whether it's financial protection or physical protection or whatever the things are we're supposed to offer each other so yeah that kind of like looking at each other as okay how are we oppressed by this system that's good as long as we're focusing our our energy on the system rather than trying to compare ourselves with each other because again we're we're then further serving the patriarchy or the system of white supremacy or whatever system of hegemony that we're looking at by by uh, by dividing and and work and comparing to each other rather than thinking about that system and how harmful it is to all of us so yes being yeah. a predator <laughs> exactly yes um i want to ask you about uh a little bit of the movie 
And remember, these are dolls, right? Like in the movie, there's no sex, there's no kissing. No like, genitals. Yeah, it's they're dolls. So it's it's incredible that all of these issues arose when like Barbie's not a sex object. She's a doll, right? And so that's right. the whole point of the movie is, you know, even dolls have pressures. But America Ferrera, um, or we put pressures on whatever. America Ferrera, she's got that big scene, right? Where she's like outlining what it means to be a woman and how you're expected to be this and not this. Uh, you are a, um, you know, a mom. You you deal with all this all the time, right? You've had to raise a child and work and struggle and make money and be present and all these pressures that you're put on in your workplace and everything. What do you think of her speech? Could you relate to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that any any woman could relate to it regardless of um, of who you're parenting with or how many people or whatever. I think that, uh, um, I, I think that, that she touched on so many different points of, of, uh, what it is like the, what's the word, the, um, it's like, you're never safe. You're never in a role or in a place where you can just relax because you're confident enough because you don't want to be too confident or you're independent enough because you don't want to be too independent. It's threatening and, you know, going back this like swaying back and forth. So she very much touches on the fluidity is a nice word. I don't want to say fluidity. She very much touches on the, um, it's almost like the gaslighting that society does for women, but for, again, for everybody um it's telling us that we're never good enough no matter how good we are or how not good we are it's just saying like you are you're ne- you can never relax because you are never at a point where you're good enough and i think that 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 whole speech that she goes through touches on you know touches on like every every i think every woman who has seen it recognizes at least half of it mm-hmm that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah and i would assume men as well like men kind of feel that as well no i cried during that scene and i wasn't really crying for women i was crying for myself because it applies in the same way just you know you can tweak it a little bit and that sort of thing um you know men again i'm comparing here but Men generally probably don't have to worry about their weight as much and physical appearance, or at least they don't put that pressure. You know, a big man is a, you know, he's a big dude, you know, and men can look a certain way and carry their weight. But there's so many pressures on women to look, to be a certain look, to be attractive. And and that was like, well, I have a daughter. So that part of it, I'm like, yeah, you know, you don't want people judged, you know, for that, you know, it's a whole person. You don't want them discriminated for that. Mm-hmm. But just the pressures of being never quite feeling comfortable and settled in. And we've talked about this on our parenting podcast, you know, it's like, oh, you know, my whole thing is I'm a present dad and I pick my kids up and I drop them off and I'm there mm-hmm. all the time and I got to be there for every little second, right? And that's really not like other dads that I've ever known. Most of them are money, 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 it's mom's debt, mom's role, give them money, they're happy, that's what they enjoy, you know, and I'm like, I don't like that, like, I just, I quit a million jobs, because I'm, like, crying at my desk, thinking, I need to be a pickup, you know, kind of thing, (laughs) 
And so that's a thing, right? Like, like I, I shouldn't have to be considered less than uh, the investment banker or the guy who moves around money for rich people and he becomes rich because of it. Like, mm-hmm. that's really how we value society. That person's paid a lot, whereas what I do is paid less, you know? So those are those kind of things that really bug me and and, and, and bother me. But um, I thought her speech was fantastic. It was great. You know, it's so touching and 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 i read this article you know she did it a whole bunch of times you know just trying to like nail it and practice it um did you ever play with barbies jordy um i wasn't allowed to play with barbies and i'll i'll come back to that in just one second mm-hmm. but um but what you said about your role as a man i mean that's one of the issues with the patriarchy is that women have all these different roles they're supposed to fill right like good partner um, good, uh, good mother, good daughter, good blah, blah, blah. Like they're supposed to be good cooks. They're supposed to be able to do all these different domestic things, but men have one role. Their one role is to make money. Mm-hmm. So if you fail at that, then you fail as a man, right? So a woman can fail. Like, I don't have to be a great cook or I don't have to be a great something, but I can say like, oh, but I do these other things very well. Like if there's a lot more allotted when we're talking about what society says women are supposed to be. Um, there's a lot more that women are supposed to be, which again is too much. It's like, I have to be this and I have to be that and I have to be that and I'm never good enough. But at the same time, the role that men have one role to make money, it doesn't matter how you make that money. You could be, you know, um, uh, I don't know, murdering puppies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that would make you any money, but you could be doing some terrible, despicable thing. Or like you said, it's while investment bankers serve a role in our society, I don't think it's a great mark of character that you don't do anything. You don't make anything. You're not contributing in any way except to like multiply this, like somebody else's bank account. But, um, but that's a very stressful thing. I'm sure for men. And that's a very confining part of the patriarchy is that your one role is to make money. And if you don't make money, if you don't make a lot of money or any money, you failed. And uh, that must be crushing. <laughs> it must be a terrible, terrible thing to feel that. And it might be the reason that you feel the need to constantly show on Instagram how much time you spend with your kids, which again is good. But it might be part of that where it's like, look, I'm still like, this is what I'm choosing. I'm choosing this. I'm choosing this. I, I, uh, anyway, that's a little, um, psychoanalysis of you. Uh, <laughs> that's, we could be here all day doing that. So. <laughs> in, your Instagram, in your Instagram feed. Um, we just Barbie, go post by post. This one, Josh is really feeling, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I wasn't allowed to play with Barbie because um, she's too sexy. It's funny because you said she's not a sexual doll, but and has no genitals. But um, but yeah, my mother especially. I I don't think my dad cared that much about this, but my mother had this this view of femininity that I think a lot of women, maybe from her generation, had this idea that feminine and actually a lot of women still have. Um, that femininity is bad, that femininity is what traps us in, in, uh, you know, discrimination and that we need to act like men and look like men. I wasn't allowed to have long hair. Um, all my clothes were like hand-me-downs from like OP, you know, OP corduroy shorts. And like, Mm -hmm. they were all just a bunch of t-shirts that said 
random things on them that I'm sure, well, I know came out of like a bag, a bag of hand-me-downs. So I wasn't allowed to look feminine and I definitely wasn't allowed to play with things that were feminine. So I wasn't allowed to play with Barbie, but I loved Barbie. Like the, I, I, uh, I'm, I somehow got hold of a Barbie and a skipper doll. Uh, I think my sister gave me the skipper doll, but, um, but that's it. I had them and I had like a plastic tub that I turned into the Barbie car. And I had, uh, some shoe boxes that I stapled together and made into a Barbie house. I don't know if this sounds really, really sad or, <laughs> or a sign of creativity, but, um, but yeah, I, I have always loved everything feminine which is probably that plus not being able to be feminine and being told it was a terrible thing um, is probably why I'm such a feminine adult. Uh, even my tattoos, which are thought of as masculine, are like a bunch of flowers and birds and butterflies and stuff. So um, pink and they're all pink. Yeah, there's a whole lot of pink in there. Uh, yeah, so I wasn't allowed to play with Barbie, but just like I wasn't allowed to watch television, I found a way and um and really loved them and and loved the I, I think what I mean I can't speak for all little girls but I think what I liked about it was just imagining myself as an adult you know and I think that that's part of what Barbie's supposed to be is imagining yourself as an adult and and thinking what kind of life you could have mm -hmm. and if you have an especially dreary sad awful life when you're a child um that's that has a lot of power to it figuring out like where you can go and when you're going to get there and how you're going to have control over that. So I think for me, that's what Barbie was is first of all, was a rebellion playing with Barbie was a rebellion because femininity was this terrible thing and I wasn't allowed to play with her. Um, but also imagining what I could do, where I could go and how there might be a whole other world away from the world that I lived in when I was little. So, so yes and no. How about you? Did you play with Barbies? um no but i have more than 100 wwe action figures still to this day that i may or may not still play with but definitely did play with as a as a youngster and um doll i mean i love playing with dolls or action figures because it's just characters and stories and role-playing and you know it's like yes people will think oh fighting but that's not really what muscular <laughs> dolls are necessarily doing you know it's storylines it's characters uh but no i don't have any female dolls i didn't i have a much older sister but never there were never dolls in the house um at all but yeah you know i think it's important to have like those kind of i think our our childhoods were similar i know they are in some ways um from what we've talked about but it's a it's a portal into a world that you would someday like to be in or at least imagine that something exists outside of your you know closet or four walls and locked door that though i could be this person you know one day and so so that was good i never really had much thoughts on barbie other than she was this like horribly unattainable physically looking person like like no woman would ever look like that but of course they came out with all these others and in the movie there's various versions of that and i always thought ken was sort of plain you know like kind of a boring white dude like 
I never wanted to look like Ken, obviously. It was <laughs> my aspiration because he's so like normal and average and perfect, which is boring, you know. But uh, no, I never bought a Ken doll or, or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, before we go ahead, I don't know, do you want to say anything or I wanted to move on? Oh, I was going to say one of the criticisms of Barbie is often that unattainable body and that like if she was a real person she'd fall over and all that kind of stuff and i think that's true and that's not something to dismiss that we have we that we set these ridiculous expectations but at the same time when you're a little girl all women's bodies are unattainable to you you know what i mean like like um when you're a little girl and you haven't gone through puberty you haven't developed yet uh all women's bodies seem like some kind of a fantasy so i again i'm not dismissing that her body is ridiculous and you know we know all that but at at the same time I don't know if that's not adult women projecting onto little girls as much as little girls at least me when I was little saw like all those adult bodies as something like you didn't have yet so you couldn't really imagine what it was going to look like or how it was going to look and oh I don't think I grew up thinking I need to look like Barbie I was way more influenced by uh, my mother and her never eating, <laughs> never ate. She never ate solid. She drank and uh, and like never exercised either. Um, and uh, other images that you see over and over again and, and the way that women talk to each other and little girls pick up on how women talk to each other and then create, I mean, that's what really affected my body dysmorphia <laughs> my image like I don't think it was Barbie I think it was and so maybe Barbie reinforces that but maybe she's really a reflection of that mm-hmm. so yeah th- those two things I think she's a reflection of our ridiculous expectations of women's bodies I don't think she reinforces them as much as we think and I think that little girls see all women's bodies as something that like is far off from them so yeah if that makes sense yeah yeah no that makes sense that's definitely a good 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 context and now that i think about it there was much more male bodies shown in that movie than female like i can picture canton ryan gosling's abs and chest really well right now but i can't remember barbie at all being like not wearing clothes, maybe like her legs and part of it. But so it's interesting in the Barbie movie, the men were sexualized probably more than the women. Well, yeah. And that was, I think a big part of Barbie land was everything was opposite, right? Women were in control. Women were the construction workers. They were the president. They were, and men were objectified. And there's that line that the voiceover says something like, um, Ken, Ken, Barbie is happy all the time. Ken is happy when Barbie notices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I again, I think that's kind of the opposite of what happens in our world. Again, like what the expectation of, of like women are there as objects for admiration. And so we feel most validated when admired, mm-hmm. um, whereas it's a different expectation for men. So, yeah, I think I think that was part of it is that they were supposed to be objectified because they were in that bizarro world. Right. And that incredibly fake hair uh, that Ryan Gosling had. But um, 
Before we move on from uh, Barbie, I want to talk about Sinead O'Connor next. And uh, did you have any final thoughts, anything you wanted to say that we didn't talk about as it relates to to the movie and anything that affected you? Or did Ruby like the movie in the same way you did? Or was her yeah, she liked it. Mm-hmm. yeah, she liked it a lot. She, yeah, yeah she, she liked it for the same reasons, I think. Yeah, because yeah. depending on generations, you know, you sort of see different things in the movie. And the music was fantastic you know yeah um so yeah definitely i'm going to see that movie probably that's that's going to be willy wonka on the chocolate factory level and clueless level for me like in heathers i'm going to be watching that movie the rest of my life you know every yeah. time I can. yeah no me too for sure um so, so we Sinead. often what's that Sinead. yeah we often talk about uh music and Sinead o'connor recently died and uh, obviously everyone knows the nothing compares to you song. And do you remember that video where it's just her face and, you know, and everyone's yeah. like, speaking of patriarchy, it was like, wow, she's so pretty with no hair. Like not a lot of women could pull that off. Like remember that whole conversation. Well, or it was, why would someone so pretty shave their head? You right. know, that so was like, why would you do that to your, to yourself when you're so pretty? And yeah. Yeah. So I definitely remember Sinead. I definitely remember that video, uh, SNL, the Pope, <laughs> all the stuff that came after that. Um, I don't, I was young when all of that happened. When did that happen? That was her second album, which is like 1989 ish. It was definitely eighties. It was the emperor's new clothes. I remember cause I bought the album and was royally disappointed in every other song on the album, except for that one. But, um, that's because, you know, what's that? Because Prince wrote it. <laughs> well, probably, you know, but no, probably just cause, you know, she wasn't like a top 40 artist, you know, she just had a big hit and she was a very different kind of a, kind of an artist, but yeah, that was probably like 89 VH1 watching it back then. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, so what did you think of her? no longer being here and uh well okay so when these celebrities die particularly the 80s ones and 90s you know when i was Mm -hmm. fully had no other commitments and was just into everything new in pop culture um i feel it right obviously when george michael died like on christmas day i was like this is one of the saddest days of my life that does not in fact affect my family like this is the saddest i could ever be for someone a celebrity you know yeah so sad on christmas yeah, he loved Christmas, apparently. Like, uh-huh. he, besides that song, he, like, really liked Christmas. Apparently, right. it was a big thing for him. So, yeah. Anyways. And Last Christmas, his song, you know. But anyway, um, and speaking of men and weight, you know, like, this is a guy who was beautiful in the 80s, right? Like, this total sex symbol, the perfect face. And then, you know, when he died, or you know, toward the end, it was always like, look how fat he is. Look how much weight he's gained. And, you know, he died bloated. And it's just like, Oh my God, you know, it's just like, can we let these people be who they are? He's a drug addict, tried not to be a drug addict, you know, and so people eat a lot. And anyway, George Michael just totally, it's sad. Every time I hear, you know, careless whisper on K Light, I'm just like, <laughs> um, Whitney Houston, obviously, Prince dying in an elevator. Like, are you kidding me? How could this happen? Why is Madonna still around? She she figured it oh, out. But anyway, I'm um, Sinead O'Connor. It made me think of like 
those days. And now, like, I listen to that song, like Ice Ice Baby for Vanilla Ice, like over and over and over, right? Those were just like these songs where you're just like, wow. And um, I knew she was sort of this progressive, this activist, you know, went against the grain and her career kind of tanked after she ripped off ripped the Pope in half on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was just sort of like curious as to why we didn't care about her for a while. And then all of a sudden she was the original feminist icon, you know? Right. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, that's what we do over and over again is uh, we ignored, she was too uncomfortable. She, so I've been reading her memoirs this, this week. Um, huh. And uh, she was uncomfortable. She made people uncomfortable because she was so so she tears up that picture of the Pope, right? Um, and that's after she has two albums. Her second album is the one she had the big hit that Prince wrote. Uh, and people pay attention to her because they're like, a pretty bald woman. Um, <laughs> and uh, she tears up that picture of the Pope. And I had heard, and I think I heard this from my sister, which I should learn to erase anything I've heard from my sister, um, <laughs> that it was it was because of, the Pope's stance on birth control, that birth control was this, you know, that like for a long time, the Catholic church was like, birth control is bad. Don't do it. Uh, and, but then after she died, suddenly it's like, no, no, no. She did that because of molestation and child abuse in the church. And I thought that just seems too convenient to say now, because wasn't that kind of early? Like the people didn't know about that, but she was Irish and Catholic. And so maybe she knew a bunch of people who were molested. Um, But so as I've been reading her memoir, she was very badly abused growing up. Like she grew up in a very, very abusive household. Uh, Her mother was just sounds like a sadist. And, um, and I think that uh, when you grow up like that, um, it's hard to recover for one, but two, the way I feel anyway, is you kind of have a throw your worst at me because I've already been through a whole lot and know what, what it's like to be in a lot of pain one way or another. So, um, I just don't care (laughs) and I'm just gonna throw as much out there as possible and it might make you uncomfortable. And I think that's what she was like as an adult is that she made people uncomfortable because she had that kind of uh, you know, screw them if they can't take a joke kind of attitude where she just put it all out there. And I think that's why people shut her down and ignored her for years and years and kind of said, like, she's just a little, a little off. You know, she's one of those people you don't want to get in a conversation with because they're going to start to just make you uncomfortable. Um, so I think that's why we ignored her. And I think that's why people ignore people in general, George Michael was ignored for years and years too, because he was, like you said, chunky and uh, unattractive. And we liked him as, as singing faith, you know, we liked him like shaking his tushy and looking like a cutie on MTV. And once he started being more emotional and writing more honest stuff and like chunking out a little bit, uh, we're like, that makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to look at it. And then he dies. And it's like, oh, suddenly you have all this emotion for somebody because they can no longer threaten you because you can create whatever story you want whatever narrative you want about who they were and turn them into 
turn them into that. And that's what I felt like people were kind of doing with the, oh, she was protesting the Pope and molestation and the way the Catholic Church uh, tried to hide all of that. Like they're changing her narrative into something that makes her a martyr and a hero. And I think she was a martyr and a hero. I think mm-hmm. she was both of those things. Um, but I think that's why we see people suddenly paying so much attention to her because she now can fill a role where we can project all this feminist ideology onto her and it's safe because she's gone and won't be able to make us uncomfortable anymore. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's so interesting too, these like one hit wonders um, and radio. It's it's just so interesting how some artists are able to continually get airplay and others kind of drift and fade away and I think a lot of people could probably not name five Sinead O'Connor songs, you know, but that song was so good and just overplayed, but it's part of our pop culture. Oh, I have one for you. And this is going live without a net here, Jordy. We didn't talk about this ahead, but I just thought about this. Um, Tracy Chapman, Fast mm-hmm. Car, right? You've heard that song. Okay. Right. Of course. I have that so, what's that? I have the record. Yeah, yeah, great, amazing song. But along these lines, right, um, Luke Combs, is that his name? Yeah, he's the country singer. He had number one hit with Bascar, like this year, this summer. I don't know. Have you heard it? You probably haven't heard it because you're not listening to the country music. Yeah. And so, he, you know, he had a hit, number one. And so all this conversation about how, like, people were getting mad at Luke Combs, the chubby, white, country boy, who makes really good country music? Um, what you know, you you're, you took her song. Obviously, he had permission, and everything, but he turned you know changed the meaning, which is sort of this. Um, well, there's lots of interpretations, but some people sort of say it's like a lesbian relationship, and they're fleeing and they're leaving. You know, their their conditions, and mm-hmm. uh, Luke Combs is over there, like you know, just a love song, you know, for him. Uh, but he made it into a number one song, right? And it was number one before, it's number one now. And so it's just so interesting how we we uh, these these songs have these this meaning for us. You know, nothing compares to you, written by Prince. Sinead O'Connor gets the attention, Tracy Chapman, this incredible fast car song. And then you should listen to the country version because it is it is really good. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's just funny because it's like, does it have the same meaning if luke combs is singing it as opposed to you know yeah. her as opposed to a woman right so um that song well and fast car was huge when it came out i mean that's yeah. what put tracy chapman on the map i think she had lots and lots of other great songs but i think people know her for fast car um but a man changing that kind of changes the the story or the takeaway from it because it's about this person who's destitute and takes care of their dad because their mom leaves and then um, kind of is doesn't have a whole lot of hope in life, financial promise, um, and is just kind of clinging on to the idea of this relationship that they have with somebody and hoping that that is going to take them out of their poverty. And it doesn't, it just sinks this person further and further into their poverty. And because, again, what we were talking about earlier, the way that the patriarchy sets up that women are there for all these different reasons, but men are there to be fine, like the financial stability. It kind of, the it changes the story if it's a man looking for that from 
a partner, I guess. Yeah. It was just me because there were all these backlash against country music for saying he shouldn't be able to do that. And he turned into this big number one hit again. And why, what are these people relating to? And my whole thing is just like, it's still her song. Like she wrote this amazing song and it can transcend musical genres. And uh, she took it. I mean, her song's the best of course, but his is really good too. In a, in a totally different way. Do you like the Prince version of Nothing Compares to You more than Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love it. And there's a couple of Prince versions. There's a live version and then there's um one that he did uh a recording of it and I I love that one too. And again, it it that song when coming from her um this woman who's left by her partner and who really and now you know you have this freedom. That's one big part of the song that kind of rings differently having her sing it versus him sing it because in the song you're talking about like he left and now I can do all this stuff like I have the freedom to go out and hang out with whoever I want and that's different coming from somebody who's female versus coming from someone who's male who's saying like yeah I can put my arms around anybody I can go to any dinner um it's it's not better or worse it's just a slightly different message because of because, uh, I don't know, there's more attention to women's fidelity in general, I think, in relationships and how women interact with men in a relationship versus a woman. I'm not saying that there's not pressure on mm-hmm. men to be faithful and et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but throughout history, there's been more leniency with men having like dalliances outside of a relationship or something because they're because they're this idea that like oh they have this biological urge whereas women aren't supposed to like sex so if you have some kind of a dalliance outside of a relationship then that's speaks stronger to your character so anyway i think it's a layer of sensitivity with prince like everything when he sings mm-hmm. you know like he has that song if i was your girlfriend do you remember that song by prince mm-hmm. and like that's yeah. another one where it's like it took me it's still when i listen to it i'm like what does he mean like i get what he means but it's like all this stuff is like two girls who are girlfriends like best besties you know can do these things in front of each other but here he's the boyfriend and she has to be like, no, don't look at me. I'm changing, you know? And he's like, we've, I've already seen you naked. What, why are you acting so weird? Mm-hmm. He's like, what if I was your girlfriend, you wouldn't care, you know? And so right. that's what Prince does so well is just sort of like <laughs> gender bend, you know, and sort of take meanings and apply them to himself uh, for sure. But <clears throat> so when Sinead O'Connor died, just to wrap this up, did you have a, like a heart, you know, did your heart hurt for this? Were you sad? You obviously been reading about her lately. What was your yeah. reaction? Oh, yeah. Ruby said, my daughter said, um, Sinead O'Connor died. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yes, I definitely <laughs> had a reaction to it. And, and because I remember, I mean, again, I was younger. Uh, I was probably, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade when that song came out. Um, but I just remember the attention to her being bald. And that people were just blown over by her being bald. And I remember kind of observing that when I was a little kid and thinking like, why are people so attached to hair? Like I wasn't allowed to have my hair long. 
Other people weren't allowed to have their hair short. Like what is our attention to women, especially and hair? It's one of the first ways that we control women and teach and teach them the opposite of consent. You know, like we tell them they can't cut their hair. They have to cut their hair. Like it's, they can't dye it. They, um, yeah. So the thing that I noticed the most, and again, I heard that song over and over and over again, but it was just this attention to her hair. And it was one of the first times I think I was really cognizant of how much control people feel over a woman's body. And if she, if she deviates from the norm at all, it becomes this like huge focus for people from like all different walks of life who suddenly feel, and again, of course this happens to men as well, but more so with women, this focus on like, you're deviating from the norm. Why would you do that? How are you doing that? What is the purpose of doing this? You know, why would you put yourself in that position um, when it's none of your business? <laughs> like it's, why is it so threatening? So for me, she stood out when I was younger because it was one of the first times I paid attention to or kind of noticed how much focus goes on a woman when she deviates from the norm. And then when she ripped up that picture of the Pope, I mean, I didn't care. Like I wasn't Catholic. I barely even knew what the Pope was, but the attention to it and the like, oh my God, you know, it's like, who cares? Who cares? You know, it's a picture. It's, it's literally symbolic. Why are we so upset with this symbolic tearing up of this picture? And why aren't, why aren't we paying attention to why she did it? Like, why are, why do we have this strong focus on the tearing up of, instead of saying like, what'd you do this for? Like, what, what is the purpose of this? Um, but again, she made people uncomfortable because she deviated from the norm so much. So nobody was going to ask her that because they didn't want to hear the answer. Mm -hmm. And you could say she made bald women beautiful too, right? I'm sure some men were like, wow, I need to stop looking at women as, by the length of their hair. And mm -hmm. they're actually beautiful whether they have long hair or not. I'm sure there's some men too who like her doing that kind of opened men's eyes to like, oh, what a, that's so stupid. Why would I judge a woman by the length of her hair? When, look at this person, you know? And and in her memoir, by the way, she talks about why she does that. It's because the studio executives wanted her to start to be more feminine. She was like very punk looking and she had short hair and stuff. And somebody was like, like they kept telling her to grow her hair out and wear like, instead of wearing Doc Martens, wear, you know, more feminine shoes and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she was complaining about it with a friend and the friend was like, you should just shave your head. So she did. And she went to a barber and the barber didn't want to do it without her dad's permission. She was like 20 years old. 20 and, old. Yeah. And the barber was like, your dad's going to come and get mad at me. And I can't, I can't shave your head. And she was in London and her dad's in, you know, in Dublin. And she's like, you're going to be fine. Just shave my head. So like the, this person wouldn't even allow her that that consent over her body. I mean, that's not to go off on a tangent, but like we tell women in so many different ways, young girls in so many different ways that they don't know how to consent to behavior with their body. We tell them what they can wear from for a long time. We don't let them dress themselves. We pick out their outfits or we have, we have uh, opinions over their outfits or we have opinions about their hair, how long their hair should be, how, how they can style it. Um, from from a very young age, that's an opportunity to teach them consent. If we allow them to have their hair the way that they want it, dye their hair if they want it, wear the clothes that they want, we're teaching them that they have, that that is consent over their body, that what they're okay with is 
this is what it is. I'm okay with my hair like this. I'm okay with my clothing like this. But we teach them that they don't have the reasoning skills, the capability of making decisions over their own hair length. And then we throw them out in the world and we're like, here, you go decide what's appropriate behavior, what's inappropriate behavior. And they're like, I don't know, like, I, I don't like, I'm not even allowed to figure out my hair on my own. So of course people don't understand consent anyway. So, um, so that was Sinead O'Connor to me, a first lesson on how much attention we pay to a woman who deviates from the norm and how much it scares us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was sad that she, I mean, that say I was sad she died sounds trivial, but, uh, I'm sad we didn't pay more attention to her throughout her life. Yes. And she should have started a podcast and just releasing her own songs, you know, on her own. And we could have had her. That's the great thing about our modern technology is these celebrities can kind of just do that. And we don't, they don't really need the record labels anymore. You know, Pee Wee Herman died too recently. And yeah, I really liked Pee Wee Herman too. Pee Wee's Playhouse was weird. <laughs> like, was that really made for kids? <laughs> you know, it seemed like it seemed like a kid, like a adult soft porn dressed in a kid show, you know, like some kind of fetish playhouse fetish. That's what it I mean, from when I watched that show when I was a little kid, I, I don't think I had the, the words uh, fetish in my head, but I definitely felt that <laughs> like um, Sandra Bernhardt is in it, you know, she's oh, really, uh huh. Yeah, yeah, she plays like the operator or some, you know, he calls and he'll get, I can't remember what her name was. And she was, she was always making these like sexual innuendos and he'd be like, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> that laugh was. <laughs> well, I mean, it's another one though. We talk about like pioneers, and, you know, groundbreakers, like here's this little man, skinny man playing a role in this little suit, obviously kind of odd and weird and you know what everyone would say about him you know i wonder if he's you know this and you know he he had he did that and created a successful character i didn't watch peewee's playhouse but i did watch uh his movies you know the um peewee's big adventure which is so funny you know it's like when he's arguing with francis you know and he's being a little kid and so another one you know it's so, it's so sad to watch these these people that we grew up watching die wasn't he canceled at some point? Yeah, I think he got he got caught in a movie theater. Masturbating. Oh, was he masturbating in a movie yeah. theater? And yeah. like that was the end of him. Everybody right. was like like forgot about him until he died. And then it's like, oh, Pee Wee's Playhouse was so amazing, and it's you know it's uh yeah it's it's the same. It's like suddenly somebody dies, and they were your best friend and the biggest influence in your life. Although uh, you know I've never heard you mention them or. <laughs> right he was a pervert for the last 20 years of his life but you know now he was you know a groundbreaker and right. saturday morning television or whatever it was you know yeah so um let's talk about something a little uh or a lot more serious and i had mentioned this to you recently but you know i'm a journalist i'm very much focused on what i'm focused on local news and the media presents stories um relative what to what they think what people will be most interested in. And then there's a lot of <clears throat> unrest that goes on all across the whole world that we don't necessarily know about in the mainstream until 
it reaches a, a peak or there's something major that happens. And although I know that Haiti forever has had a lot of political unrest and poverty and horrible conditions and, and, and lack of money and government structure, you're kind of aware like, oh yeah, that's Haiti, right? But recently, you know, it seems to have gotten worse, at least in the eyes of the news coverage. And there was a kidnapping of a, a mother and a daughter. And I read some articles and found out that one of the only ways that anyone can make any money is through ransom, through kidnapping. And so this happens. And it just made me sort of like go down a rabbit hole of researching what's going on. Cause the other side of the Island is the Dominican Republic and they're not in the same situation and it's just geography and you are Ms. Geography. So uh, what Jordy, what, what, um, what's your take sort of on the latest sort of, news regarding Haiti and and maybe you can just take a couple minutes to educate me and the audience about like about Haiti. how terrible it is there you know the children they're starving you know there's no yeah. school well and what you were saying about ransom um that happens in places where you have an unofficial government or you don't have an official government or you have pockets that are outside of government control so Colombia for a long time uh, was under part of it was under control by the FARC, the FARC, and it was this unofficial government that worked out that was still in Colombia but was outside of the official, like the the official government didn't have control, um, and that that government supported their unofficial government by kidnapping people and um, asking for ransoms. And uh, Somalia does a similar thing. Somalia has been in a state of anarchy. In fact, it's in a state of anarchy. It's in such a significant state of anarchy that part of it is broken off into what's called Somaliland, which isn't not a recognized political state. But again, they have like their own border in between Somaliland and the rest of Somalia. And Somalia has been in a state of anarchy for uh, um, a while as well. And that's why a couple of years ago we heard a lot about piracy because mm. that ransoming and then you have you have like the Suez. You're going by to get to the Suez Canal. Um, I can't remember what percentage of trade in the world, global trade in the world goes through there, but a significant percentage of global trade goes through the Suez Canal. You're going right by this country that's in a state of anarchy, and that was their income. That was like how they made money for a long time. So um, and still do. Uh so Haiti, Haiti, Haiti is a good case study of how geography, how geography is destiny, how geography can create and how you can't escape your geography. So um, so uh, to answer that question without going into like a three hour long lecture, um, first of all, <laughs> Haiti and Dominican Republic are on the island of Hispaniola, which is the island that Columbus first got to when uh, he ran into the Americas. Um, and uh, and it was one of the first colonized parts of the Americas. Um, the reason that Europeans started to colonize the Americas is because Europe is all in the mid latitudes. So it's all at 30 degrees and above. So uh, the equator is zero degrees, 30 degrees and above. And the mid latitudes are where we grow a lot of staples. So the mid latitudes have the seasonal variation and um, 
a whole lot of other things that make them perfect to grow annual plants, plants that grow like in a year long cycle. And annual plants are what we farm most around the world because they're easier to control. So Europe in the mid latitudes had a good handle on annual plants, staples, wheat, mostly wheat, but they can't grow any of the things that you grow in the tropics. And what you grow in the tropics is like, like the spice of life, literally and figuratively. It's spices, it's sugar, it's coffee, it's cocaine, it's cacao. It's like all the good stuff, you know, <laughs> like you got your rice and your wheat in the mid latitudes and like that'll take you through the day. But the, the fun of life, the cacao and the cocaine, that's all happening in the low latitudes around the tropics. So for a long time, Europe had been trading with countries in the low latitudes in Africa and in, in the rest of Asia for all that good stuff. And they were always at a trade deficit. They were always, they were never making enough that they could actually buy all the stuff. They were always, they were always on the low end. So when, when this, uh, what's the word I want to use? When Columbus comes across ancient civilizations and two other continents, <laughs> Europeans start to think, you know, instead of trading at a deficit, we could control this whole part of the world that's in the low latitudes and we can grow the stuff that we're trading at a premium. Portugal had already done it off the coast of Africa on an uninhabited island called Sao Tome. So they they start to colonize specifically the Caribbean because it's this place where you can make a whole lot of money instead of losing at trade. Um, and so Hispaniola is one of the first places that's colonized. Now Hispaniola and all of these Caribbean islands are the tops of mountains. They're basically, there's two mountain chains. So they're all a mountain. And what happens on a mountain is you have a wet side and you have a dry side because of something called orographic lifting. Dominican Republic is on the wet side. Uh, Haiti is on the dry side. <clears throat> Caribbean also has this whole, so there's four different tectonic plates that are like crushing into the Caribbean, coming together in the Caribbean. And so you have a lot of mountain building, you have earthquakes, you have volcanic eruptions, plus you're in Hurricane Alley. So you have a whole lot of hurricanes that come through there as well. So you're on the dry, so your country is a third of an island, that's Haiti. It's on the dry side of an island. It's going to get ravaged with earthquakes, uh, with hurricanes, and you're already on a slope. And so that sets you up for ecological disaster. You are on the dry side, you get pummeled with an earthquake, you get pummeled with a hurricane, you're gonna see landslides, debris flows, just taking your infrastructure out, growing any kind of manufacturing, growing anything past agriculture is gonna be very, very difficult. So there's that part of it. There's the physical geography part of it. <clears throat> and then there's the colonization part of it, where again, like I said, Europe wanted to colonize this part of the world because they wanted to basically get a jump on trade and stop trading at a deficit. And so what happens is they grow very, very labor intensive crops. They don't have enough Europeans willing enough or able to like, they just don't have the sheer numbers that you need. And so you start, you see the beginning of African slavery. And with the beginning of the enslavement of Africans, you have this like movement of people, this involuntary movement of people from Africa into the Caribbean. <clears throat> And you start to see the Caribbean populated with um, people who are involuntarily moved there and enslaved there. 
Uh, the Arawak people, the people who would have lived on Hispaniola, they fought or they died from disease or they left, right? That was their home turf. So, so <clears throat> you have this clearing out of indigenous people, you have this um, involuntary movement of Africans. And so you, and you have very few Europeans who actually want to live there. Uh, the Caribbean is a hard place to live because of all the things I said, hurricanes, earthquakes, all that stuff, mosquitoes, malaria, the colonies that were in the mid latitudes, like New York had people, colonists who actually stayed, but in the Caribbean, it was mostly enslaved people. All right. So Haiti is the second free country in the Americas. So it's one of the first colonized. The U.S. is the first to fight their war for independence. Haiti is the second. Uh, and Haiti doesn't just fight a war for independence. They fight a rebellion. It's, the, it's a slave rebellion. So it's not just a war for independence fought by colonists, by colonizers, like it was here in the U.S. It was literally a slave rebellion. And it's the only successful slave rebellion in the history of the world. The only successful. The day that the war for independence started here in the U.S., there had already been 200, 200 slave rebellions attempted here in the U.S. So being the only successful slave rebellion in the world is a big deal. When the French, who, was, who had colonized Haiti, finally said, all right, fine, have it. Um, they let Haiti go, but they said, okay, you can have this country, we'll leave you alone, but you gotta pay us back for all our property that we lost. And that includes you. So you have this group of people who had just fought the only successful slave rebellion in the history of the world, now have to pay France back for themselves. So they start their country out in debt. And again, this is a long time ago, but it's not really that long ago. So they start their country out in debt and nobody will help them because the U.S. feels kind of like the U.S. at the time was the only other free country in the Americas. They weren't going to help them because it was a country that was now run by formerly enslaved people. And it looked very hypocritical because they were still enslaving people. So all these countries went along with this embargoing of, of Haiti until they paid France back. So they started their first 38 years or something like that, paying 80% of their GDP, 80% of the money they made in a year back to France. And what they did to pay that back is they just ravaged their countryside. They completely deforested, cut everything down, like um, really hurt their ecological future. So while that was a while ago, that why they're so impoverished has its roots there. That this is, again, the only successful slave rebellion in the world, but the post-rebellion and the beginning of independence for them was a very, very different road from like if you compare them to the U.S. because of trade relations, because of the things that they were, that like the, the amount of money that they had to pay back. And then the ecological the what they what essentially like the deforestation that comes with that really hurts them in the long run. So the answer to why is Haiti in this state of anarchy now starts there. It starts with the location. It starts with being on the dry side out of an island. It starts with having a very difficult, difficult road to building a manufacturing core so that you're constantly relying on agriculture but you see this history of deforestation in order to pay the French back. So they're 
while we think of colonization as a long time ago, it's still very much hurting different countries because of political relationships that are created in the post-colonial era and because of the environmental damage that often happens in the post-colonial era. That plus the Cold War is where we get Haiti kind of still in this in this like cycle of poverty. Um, and Haiti still, you know, it's one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have a public school system. I think it's one of three in the world that doesn't have a public school system. So in order to go to school, everybody who goes to school has to pay, which means you have a whole lot of people who aren't able to go to school. Um, there's a system of child slavery there. It's called the Restovec system that, that uh, you have people who have a whole lot of kids they can't afford to send them to school. They sell mostly their daughters into this system, Restovec in French, it's like to rest with, to, to uh, stay with. Um, so you have a lot of young girls, especially who are sold into this system of child slavery, who end up abused and not educated and, um, and it's just a mess. And so, so uh, geography is very much the answer to why Haiti is in the position that it's in, but it's not so much their geography, it's what their geography has meant to the rest of the world and how that's impacted them. Does that make sense? <laughs> that was no, a whole no. lot. No, that's great. That's like, I'm gonna watch that 10 times. Um, but let me ask you this, America, US gets involved in conflicts from time to time. Um, if we know that in Haiti, they're, they, don't have nuclear weapons, that there's just a total rebellion, that there's just, it's chaos, it's anarchy, that children are suffering and being trafficking, and there's no education system. And this is a very US-centric viewpoint, but why wouldn't we go in there and like help and like change it, you know, because we would obviously be able to, but is that like a, you know, an Iraq thing, you can go in there and clean house but then once you leave it's just going to come back or how, how do we have conditions like this in the world and then here we are in the united states and we're just like all complaining about you know the latest Barbie <laughs> um sorry dog is barking um we're complaining about barbie and uh or just complaining about you know a lot of things that relatively speaking, we're a lot more privileged to be living in the U S but I mean, do we just let Haiti be, and it's just going to be like that forever or how do we help or fix? I mean, the last president was what, assassinated. So I, I don't, I don't know. So the question, that question people often have, like, do we go in and help every country because, you know, we've done it in the past. Um, I don't think that we've gone in, and, and this is uh, going to get me, you know, negative feedback on not being patriotic or whatever. But, um, but the U.S. has served has it's going into other countries has always been self serving. Yeah. You know, it's it's not going into um, Vietnam because it cares about uh, the Viet Cong it, and the Vietnamese people. It's going in because they cared about having more resources so that they could win the Cold War. Um, the Caribbean is like I said, this, this, I did that whole setup on colonization, 
but that's still what the world wants from the low latitudes, from the countries that are in the tropics. Those countries still serve as resource suppliers to the manufacturing and service-based economies that are in the mid-latitudes. So what's called the uh, world systems theory that you have core countries like the US, like countries in Europe, um, like Japan, uh, countries that have a stronger economy that are all kind of in bed together. And resources flow from what we call the periphery. So the periphery would be countries like Haiti, who are still mostly based in agriculture, uh, agriculture or mining. Um, basically, they're taking what's in the ground and sending it to the core that manufactures and then consumes most of it. So this idea of like, why do we let Haiti or why do we let these countries kind of stay in the system of poverty? They're in that system of poverty because of us, because of the core, not just the US, but because of the strongest economies in the world. The strongest economies in the world want to keep them or maybe don't even want to keep them in that system of chaos, but actions have prevented them from coming out of that system of chaos in order to keep resources coming cheap from the periphery and flowing to the core. Mm -hmm. So why we don't do anything about that? I mean, the not the U.S., not only the U.S., but the core has caused that. You know, the, the reason that we see dictators, for example, in the Caribbean and in Central America and in Latin America in general, um, all through the Cold War, we see like these these people who come to power who are dictators and they're being supported by the U.S. You know, they're being backed by the U.S. Pinochet in Chile, in Chile was backed by the U.S. until he wasn't. Um, uh, Saddam Hussein was backed by the U.S. until he wasn't. So as long as these people are serving to keep their their population subservient and keep resources coming out for cheap, that's serving the core. So when we see countries like Haiti or the DR Congo or different places where they just seem to be in constant kind of chaos and we think like, why don't we help them? They're there because of us. They're there because of this system of things coming from the periphery, raw resources coming from the periphery, feeding the core. Mm. So that's why we don't help them because... <laughs> because uh it's serving a larger economic system and uh and that's not going to be a popular opinion but that's it's not an opinion it's it's uh yeah well why did god create the world this way jordy i just don't understand i don't know <laughs> i think uh it's i think this is all on us I don't think we can blame some other some other higher power. Yeah, I think that they did release that mom and daughter. Um, they're still mm -hmm. alive. There was a, an outcome there. But as I was teaching in my um, one of my journalism classes at CSUN about journalistic oppression, and we were looking at Belarus and how it's illegal to run a newspaper <laughs> Like you're not allowed to criticize the government. And so there's these rebel underground journalists who will start these publications and risk their lives to publish the news that's not making the government look good. And then they'll publish a story and then they'll disappear. 
Like, it's just like somebody else has got to come in now and do this. And just so much, so much going on in the world that just, you know, we, I mean, actually people like you and others do focus on and do know that the most of the mainstream is shocked when they find out this is, this is happening. Like the oppression of the Iranian women, you know, it's like, that's, that was last year. Right. And it's still, you know, and, and it's just so, so much bad going on in the world. And we kind of learn about them in spurts, but it's constant. It's everywhere all the time. Mexico is the worst place in the world to be a journalist, you know, because yeah. they kill you and they drug, drug cartels will kill you and worse, they'll kill your family. And, you know, so it's like, you know, well, yeah, and um, speaking of Iran, like uh, Iran got a lot of attention last year, like you said, but I mean, Iran is still, it's not in a state of chaos like Haiti, but it's chaotic. I mean, Iranians here can't go home. Anybody who is coming from the US and going trying to go to Iran is going to be detained, most likely by the government and thought of as some sort of terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, even people who are Iranian who live here can't go home uh, right now. So so yeah, I wonder if our concerns and our our focus on things like the Barbie movie being anti-male is a way of just distracting us so we don't pay attention to all this chaos in the world because that chaos actually again like I said serves our economy. You know, it doesn't serve it in the long run just like burning fossil fuels is not going to serve us in the long run, but it does serve a small minority of people right now who control a whole lot of wealth Mm. Um, yeah so i wonder if we're distracted by these things because it's serving again a system of hegemony a system of economic hegemony this time instead of a cultural hegemony we have a few more minutes and this this podcast has been awesome it's like every segment is worth watching multiple times um but i want to ask you speaking of colonization uh last week it, there was old Spanish days and uh, I took my daughter down there a couple times, as you know, you well know from Instagram since you, you know, a lot could be psychoanalyzed through my posts apparently, but um, you know, I like the eggs, you know, but I don't, I, I don't like the crowds. I'm a total introvert. I, I, I mean, I can handle crowds and be normal. I don't like freak out or anything, but it's just not like my natural default. And uh, it's a lot of people there. And, a lot of people dressed up in flamenco dresses or sort of like a, a tinge of flamenco to their normal clothes, a flower or a scarf or a hat or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's part of our Santa Barbara tradition. And so many generations have grown up participating in Fiesta or enjoying Fiesta and appreciating it. And uh, it's this huge moneymaker for the city as well. And one of the things that I don't understand, and I've never gotten a real clear answer from anyone other than just get over it, Josh. There's a new meaning to it now, and it's not that. And now all cultures come together for this incredible event. Um, But I've never kind of understood how we, not me, but like we, meaning local officials, elected officials, activists, environmentalists, everybody who's really progressive, embraces this so much to the point where there's a lot of uh uh history here that we seem to ignore when we're celebrating old spanish days what do you think of this well yeah like all that 
progressive ideology gets thrown out the window when Fiesta comes along. And I don't, I don't get it either. I don't understand Fiesta. I don't understand uh, how, like you said, people celebrate it. And I don't get the point because it's celebration of the colonization of California. Um, that means the, the uh, genocide of indigenous people here. And the whole flamenco dancing, um, the things that we associate with old Spanish days weren't actually a part of that Spanish colonialism. There were barely any women here. Uh, the women who were here were indigenous women who were being forced to labor for the Spanish. And uh, this whole like, so, so California was a, you know, a colony of Spain and then uh, part of Mexico and then becomes part of the U.S. And uh, nobody came here. Like um, people came here from Spain in very small numbers and they settled along the coast, you know, where the missions are. They're all supposed to be a day's walk from each other. Uh, and they were all about producing, right? Producing stuff and sending it back to the colony, to Spain. And then when Mexico has their war for independence, because this is a part of the Spanish colony, it becomes a part of Mexico. But again, Mexico couldn't get anybody to come up here. It's too far away. Mexico City was the center, the economic center, the population center. And there's a huge, there's a whole lot of mountains and a whole lot of desert in between us and them. And so they couldn't get people up here either. They couldn't get people to Texas. You know, they offered land in Texas. Texas becomes Texas, its own country for a while, because Mexico was like, you can come here and have land. You just have to do three things. You can't uh, you can't bring people you're enslaving. You have to become Catholic and you have to become Mexican. And all these people came in from the south and they're like, yeah, we'll take the land. But guess what they didn't do? They didn't become Mexican. <laughs> They didn't become Catholic and they brought the people they were enslaving with them. And then they're like, okay, this is our country now, right? And they break off. So Mexico couldn't get people up here. And then when California becomes part of the US, uh, there's a short little bump with the gold rush where a whole bunch of people come into San Francisco and the Bay Area. But then after that, after the gold rush peters out, again, nobody wanted to come here. It's too far away. In between California and the rest of the US, again, there's desert and huge mountains and a whole lot of space and then people. So um, so there was these different moves to try to get people out here. One was to kind of turn it into like this health tourist destination. And there was a whole bunch of sanitariums and stuff and like dry out your tuberculosis kind of places here in California. And then this woman who had never been to California writes a book called Ramona where she just creates this whole fantasy of what uh, the missions were like. Um, and again, she'd never been here. And by that time, the missions were secular. People had literally dismantled the missions and used the material to build their houses. So she writes this whole fantasy book where you've got like Spanish senoritas and Indian princesses and all these, and that's what they're called in the book. Um, and all of these different, you know, like just fantastical, romantic telenovela kind of book that all these people read, it became this hit. And people are like, I wanna to go to California and, and take part in this whole Spanish culture that didn't exist here. Um, so people start coming out here as tourists and they're like, go to the missions and the missions don't even have roofs, you know, like they've been taken apart and there's no Spanish colonial, there's no senoritas, there's no indigenous people, it's all gone. 
And so that's when California starts rebuilding the missions and starts with this whole like mission schlocky architecture of the freaking Spanish style roofs everywhere, Spanish style, Spanish tile, um, and uh, creates this whole image of what we thought Spanish colonialism was, but it never was. And that's what Fiesta is based on. Fiesta, again, is this tourist draw that comes after the whole like Spanish romanticizing of California in order to get tourists out here. So I don't know why we celebrate Fiesta. It erases indigenous people. It glorifies a history that, well, it doesn't even like glorify the correct history. And the actual history is one that annihilated the indigenous population. Um, uh, so I don't get it. And I don't get why uh, the college that, you know, we might work for um, has a uh, land acknowledgement statement, an official one on their website, but also had the celebration of the colonization of the land that they acknowledge belongs to the Chumash, but also let's celebrate the colonization by having a whole bunch of rides celebrating Fiesta on college land, which also belongs to the Chumash, right? I, I don't, I don't understand it. So um, I don't know. I don't know. I, to me, it's a, I don't get it. I, I really don't. Um, it, it sounds like you're overthinking it, Jordy. At least that's what, that's what everyone tells me when I try to like explain to them why something's wrong you know, ethically. You're overthinking it, Josh. Chill out, relax. It's not that bad. Well, that's what people say when they don't understand something. Like that that movie, um, uh, what was that movie with, that David Lynch movie with Naomi Watts? Um, it's, uh, it's a street in LA. Anyway, it was, it didn't know. make any sense. Um, movie didn't make any sense. And I walked out of that movie and the person I was with was like, well, don't think about it too much. And I was like, was it blue? Was blue in the title? No. No, it was um, it was the name of a road. Uh, oh, longest street in LA. There are people watching right now, screaming at us, being like, "It's that road." Yes, I know the road you're talking about. It's like an iconic LA road, and like yeah. if we had a researcher and a staff. If I were Joe Rogan, I'd be like, "Look up the name of that word, road, and <laughs> tell us what it is." Right? Get back to me. Um. So yeah, what people uh, people don't get stuff it turns into you know um don't think about it too much and i think that's what's happening with fiesta because people don't want to criticize it because they feel like they're criticizing uh you know a marginalized population and um without looking and seeing that it's it's colonization it's it is the colonization of california that we're cel that we're celebrating while we claim to okay and fine if you want to celebrate that then fine but don't also acknowledge that this land is Chumash land in your like in the next sentence, because that's what that's <laughs> right. So if you want yeah. to celebrate the colonization of California, then celebrate the colonization of California. Um, but don't then include indigenous people in your acknowledgement of people who have a right to space and life and stuff like that, because that's that you're celebrating the colonization and the the genocide of those people well you're not allowed to point out hypocrisy either you know that's another bad thing it's not mulholland drive is it that's, yes, a that's it it's mulholland drive okay 
there, we got it. I don't even need research staff. I can do it myself. Um, well, but, so when I, when I, go ahead. For the one person who might note that Mulholland Drive is not the longest road in um, in LA. That's right. It's Sepulveda Boulevard is the longest road in LA. But anyway, go ahead. Good. Um, so yeah, just last thing on this is that people say, well, it's taken on a new meaning. You know, so now we have uh, all cultures coming together to participate in dancing and food and recreation and this unity and and all of that. And so therefore what it once was, it's really something out. And if you took it away, children would lose their dreams of dancing and being spirit and uh, businesses would lose money and small business vendors would lose money. And there would be a huge loss to the economy when people really depended on this, you know, like the eggs I'm buying are three for a dollar, four for a dollar. Some of them are much more expensive, uh, but this matters to them. And so that's what I get back is like, well, well, yeah, but this is like a event that, you know, that has that name, but it's really about this other thing. Does that hold water to you? Or what do you say to people who are like, you're just going to hurt the poor people among us who rely on this event to make money? Well, like I said, it's okay, have it, but yeah. stop pretending that it that it reflects the culture of of California at any point because yeah. again, it doesn't. It was this made up sort of tourist uh, story, this narrative that brought tourists in, um, and stop. Then, like, if you have a a, a um, land acknowledgement in your email signature. And you're like, but it's, but we can't take this away. I mean, come to terms with what that means because those things are opposed to each other. They're, it's hypocritical. So it's, it's fine if we want to have this, this week long tourist spend a whole lot of money. Small businesses make money. Uh, people get to dance. Like that's fine. But, but like call it what it is. It's, a week long <laughs> people get drunk and dance festival oh. like that's what it is and and uh you want to yeah it, it um it doesn't make sense to me and it's fine to celebrate you know and i'm not saying like you can't celebrate uh mexican heritage because that becomes that is a, a lot of this is well it's called old spanish days mexican heritage is a big part of that and i don't want to not celebrate mexican heritage mexican heritage is a huge part of santa barbara and of california so but we need to stop call we need like we need to come to terms with what we're celebrating and like kind of call it what it is and figure out figure out what it is because we don't seem to know what it is which is why i think a lot of people are like don't overthink it because we haven't thought it through we haven't thought through what that what it actually means to all of us and it's one of those things too where if there were actual leader who came out and like said we need to stop this and explained and educated that we live in such a group think society that other people would be like oh you're right i never thought about that when clearly you and i can have this conversation and we think about that they all can think about it before they participate in these events you know but it's people are safe if no one's complaining but if people complaining then they all of a sudden have to like act like oh yeah i'm outraged too and very very frustrating did you ever go to a fiesta parade when you were growing up it's so hot and like yeah, so, yeah the all 
all I remember about Fiesta when I was little is um, it was very hot and uh, there was a lot of horses and horses and heat for some reason just feel um, like somehow horses add to heat, you know, like the, well, and also a lot of clothing. Like that's something that I've always looked at Fiesta and like people were wearing all these clothes, like these huge dresses and like the, the outfits. And I'm just like, aren't you hot? <laughs> you're up there on that horse you've got to be sweat I'm schwitzing down here you know like so um those are my memories of fiesta is hot and why are you wearing all those clothes <laughs> aren't you hot and like the makeup the amount of makeup that people wear how do they not sweat through it I would be sweating through that that would be it would just slide right off yeah um, so those are my memories of fiesta and I'm not a horse person I get really nervous around horses and... well they kick and kill me. It's like those yeah, spiders. Thank you. <laughs> That's how Don Draper's dad died in Mad Men. Was that a TV show? Pop culture? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You know me. Golden Girls, Seinfeld, What's Happening. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. You know, no. Alice. We need to talk about Alice one day, that show. Yeah. I love that show. And then the spinoff from that. Was that Flow show? Yeah. What was it called, though? Flow? No. Was it? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen one of those. We should, you know what we should do is a show on bad spinoffs. We should do The Ropers and oh, Flow yeah. or whatever it was called. The Golden Palace, you know? I like The Golden Palace. I love The Golden I mean, it didn't have Dorothy on it, but it still was funny. It had Don Cheadle in it and uh, and um, Cheech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love uh, Cheech. Cheech Marin. Um, yeah. And Don Cheadle is so good. He's just such a good actor that like even on, you know, a small television show like that, he's just like golden. Mm -hmm. Make a, not to make a pun, but all right. Yeah, well, there's a lot of show. But anyway, I appreciate your views on Fiesta because I don't really understand it. But like people who I know, like smart people, like who I respect are all in on it. And it's just like I realize part of it is image you know you kind of have to do what everyone else is doing and if you don't do it you're seen as like the weirdo but come on like you know take a stand and and do something or call it out or like you're saying you know don't be a hypocrite about it just be honest about what you're doing well and just think about all the different ways in the u.s the u.s is a giant country think about all the different ways we could be celebrating old colonial days you know in the south <laughs> Uh, on the East Coast, in Hawaii, in Alaska, like, would you feel the same way if you saw celebrations of, you know, old, of um, parts of colonial culture in the southern part of the U.S. or in yeah. the East Coast or in Hawaii? Uh, I don't know if you would. So, um, so yeah. So how would that be viewed by the rest of the country if we celebrated old colonial Mississippi days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I guarantee you, not good. Okay, so uh, Jordy, I think we're about out of time, and I don't know if we missed anything we wanted to talk about, but I think this has been a good one. And uh, when are we gonna? When are you gonna see Barbie again? Are you gonna see it in the theater? Or are you gonna stream it? Uh, I don't know. I may be in the theater again. I'd like to see it again, but uh, yeah, I'll see it again soon, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, once again, great conversation. Appreciate your time, and we'll do it again. All right. Take care.